Hello and welcome to the Blue Collar Yields podcast. I am your host, Tom Migliaccio. At Blue Collar Yields, we will talk about real estate, entrepreneurialism, and many other topics. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts. And while there, don't forget to rate this show and subscribe. Next up on Blue Collar Yields, we have Victor Hackett, who specializes in opportunity zones. Victor and his partner, Tina, share over 30 years of experience in investment management and in 2018, co-founded OpZone Nation. Victor also goes by Professor Hackett. He teaches real estate studies at Drexel University's Labelle College of Business. Victor has advised national home builders, private equity funds, and commercial banks. His professional background includes stint at Lennar Homes, the largest home builders in the U.S., and LEM Capital, as well as a Looper Adler real estate private equity fund. His expertise includes fund level management, fund financial modeling, fund asset management, real estate acquisitions, dispositions, project underwriting, and project management. All right, Victor, thanks for joining us today. We're really excited to have you here. Appreciate you guys having me. Thank you. So let's get into it. How did the OZs first get started? Opportunity Zones were first put into legislation in the 2017 Jobs Act. But even before that, they were kind of the think child of a think tank in D.C., which was made up of a gentleman named Sean Parker. A lot of people know Sean Parker because he was the creator of Napster. It's the reason you don't see music stores anymore. And then he was one of the first presidents of Facebook. And another gentleman named Steve Glickman, Obama White House advisor. He's also an an adjunct professor over at Georgetown. They came together. They tried to think of an idea to how could we take capital gains that's paid from people having stock and deciding to sell stock where they had a gain or, or any object where you sell and you have a gain that you would report on your taxes and give them some type of a tax break if they decide to put that money back into the areas inside America that most need it. So what they did is they created a concept called Opportunity Zones that then went into the 2017 Jobs Act. And then fast forward to now, a lot of clarification was done at the beginning of the year in April. So you've seen a lot more movement in Opportunity Zones. So in the Jobs Act, is it true that it was just three pages? Yeah, so the Jobs Act is about three pages. Most people know from it the the corporate tax cut piece, which is pretty self-explanatory. But the Opportunity Zone piece was maybe half a page out of there. And it really is interesting because it gives you an idea of how tax law kind of comes into play in the U.S. So inside that act, it, it talked about Opportunity Zones. It expressed that there were going to be established opportunity zones across the country. So the 2010 census established 8,700 opportunity zones across the country. Those are 8,700 census tracts. And those tracts are areas that have higher than average poverty numbers, higher than average need for better housing, have sometimes lower than average student test scores. So there are areas throughout the country that needed capital infusion if you will, to see improvement. So the Opportunity Zone piece of the JOBS Act talked about 
if capital gains dollars went into one of those 8,700 tracks across the country in the form of a fund. So an opportunity zone fund invests inside an opportunity zone track, you would be able to defer your capital gains tax. So if you had made a million dollars and there was a 20% tax on that, that was 200,000, and you were gonna have to pay that in December. Instead of paying that this December, if you as an investor put the money in to an opportunity zone fund within 180 days of when you made that gain, so let's say you made that gain sometime around mid this year and you invested the money in inside an opportunity zone fund before December 31st, that fund would then have up to a year to invest money inside an opportunity zone. Now, that fund could invest money in inside an opportunity zone in the form of a property investment or business investment. So on the property investment side, which most people are more familiar with, about 97% of the funds out there are property-focused. If you change the use of a property that you buy inside a zone, or if you substantially improve a property, which means improve it by more than what you bought it for minus the value of the land, so only improve it by more than what the current improvements are worth, that property is now a qualified opportunity zone property. And if the fund holds on to that property for 10 years, when it sells the property, it does not have to pay capital gains. Now, the investor who's keeping his money in the fund, if they keep their money in that fund, for five years, they see a 10% reduction in the, that initial $200,000 tax. If they keep their money in that fund for seven years, they see a 15% reduction in that initial $200,000 tax. And mind you, everyone has to pay that initial tax that they're putting into the, the Opportunity Zone Fund back by 2026. So that's a hard date is the end of 2026 is when everyone has to pay back their capital gains tax bill from what they're putting into the Opportunity Zone funds. But mind you, the fund to get the full tax treatment needs to keep an investor's money out for 10 years. So let's say you bought a piece of property for 200000 exactly, and the land was worth 100000 and what is called improvements or the building that's worth another 100000 What Vic is saying, because the improvements are worth $100,000, you have to improve the existing domicile by 100000 in order to be compliant. Is that correct? Yes. By, you would have to put in $100,001 to be exact. Me. As long as you're making even just $1 over the existing value, and like you stated, if it's 200,000 and the land is half of that of 100, you only have to improve it by the domicile piece of it and put in one more dollar because one more dollar makes it substantial. With it just being three pages and then a, being a half a page in that, how did you first hear about it and when did you decide to start moving forward with this? So the Jobs Act came out around the end of December 2017. And it had been in talks for a couple of years before that. I got very involved through working with Drexel University. I'm an adjunct professor over there teaching real estate studies at the business school. 
because we had a couple of deals here in Philadelphia that were some of the first opportunity zone deals done back last year in 2018. So I teach at Drexel, but I also do some consulting for the cities, what's called a CDFI. For those not familiar with the CDFI, a CDFI stands for Community Development Financial Institution. Philadelphia's CDFI is called Philadelphia Industrial Development Corporation, more widely known as PIDC. So what CDFIs do is they put out money, very similar to banks, and projects throughout a specific area. So in terms of Philadelphia's CDFI, which is PIDC, puts out money in Philadelphia. So we were one of the first to be involved in some of these Opportunity Zone projects that were going on in Philadelphia, which is what really got me at first involved and decided to steer all of my background in real estate and law specifically into this area because there was the Initial Jobs Act piece that was the three pages at the end of 2017. There was some additional clarification that came out in 2018 where it gets a little thicker and you usually find this with tax law. The clarification keeps getting a little thicker, right? Because then it becomes an industry in itself. Really, this has become its own area of tax law, its own area within law firms because it touches not only land, but it touches businesses as well. But the last thicker book came out in April. And that's the one that was really the game changer. That's the one where the IRS and the U.S. Treasury had a hearing that my partner, Tina Gunnar's daughter, and I went down to. That was about a month ago because they were speaking on that clarification that came out on April. And that was where they got into the nitty gritty for not just the first few groups to go in on deals, but for really traction to go on. So in that April clarification was where you saw them say things like on the fund level, a fund has up to 12 months to reinvest dollars that it puts out on a property within a fund and the investor is not penalized. Now, here's what that means in simplistic terms. If a fund had purchased a duplex and the fund decided after two years they were going to sell that duplex instead of hold it for the full 10 years because after 10 years, you don't pay the capital gains tax. So after two years, they sold that duplex and they had the money and that means they would have 12 months to reinvest that money and buy another duplex in an opportunity zone so that the investor inside that fund would still be in compliance. And compliance means that they would still not have to pay back that capital gain until 2026. And that when they sold their interest inside that opportunity zone fund, if they did it after 10 years, they don't pay any taxes on their gain in the fund. So pieces like that were clarified in April so that people started to feel more and more comfortable about putting their money into opportunity zone funds. There's still some pieces that are getting spelled out that people want more clarification on. For instance, in that example, as much as the investor is not penalized and you could buy and sell properties within that 10-year time frame, at the property level versus at the investor level, you still would have to pay the tax. So you would have to pay the tax when you were buying and selling that duplex, even though the investor wouldn't be penalized for him holding his investment in the fund. One of the more beneficial pieces that came out of April that still exists, though, is something like refinancing and how you do that with properties within a fund. There's no limitation on a fund manager using 
bank refinance dollars to make distributions out to investors and not be receiving a penalty on receiving distributions for that 10-year time frame because you can receive distributions, you can receive income from your investment in an opportunity zone fund over that period before the 10 years. It's just that you're going to get taxed on as regular passive income versus when you sell your interest after 10 years and you don't have any tax on the gain. And it seems like the OZs are getting a lot of traction with institutional investors who are looking to deploy capital into larger projects. Do you see a path towards OZ legislation helping neighborhoods with smaller dollar investments on a more micro level? Well, you're right. I do see the activity on the large institutional investor side, namely because these are groups or the individuals involved who have, have large substantial gains when they sell their interest in something. For example, I know a group out there, they sold a substantial asset and they were sitting on something between 50 to $75 million in a capital gain. So that was something where they could take it and put into a substantial size project and really get the economy of scale of out of there not being a lot of people at that level to compete with them on going in and being able to do that level of project. I've seen and worked with some groups who are also small urban developers where they're doing smaller mixed unit properties where initially they had thought about having properties as for sale. And now they're, while they're still condominium, the property out in terms of its entitlement and zoning and approvals, they're deciding to hold it inside a fund for 10 years so that they can get some maximization on the gains that they're normally taking from being involved in real estate. So I see more involvement going on on the smaller side, but for the most part so far, yes, it has been institutional. Where I'm really excited about is is we have an educational services portion of our company, OpZone Nation, and you can find all this at our website, www.opzonenation.com, O-P-Z-O-N-E-N-A-T-I-O-N-E.com. So on the educational services tab, you'll find that we have a simple two-page worksheet, which gives you everything we're discussing and more in terms of the intricacies of the law. So you can always go back to it if you're someone who's just a flipper or a wholesaler or a smaller real estate investor, because there's nothing that stops someone from taking the one-page tax form, filling that form out. And if you're someone who's just doing flips and you're fine paying the tax on the property level, but the gains that you're taking, you're not paying taxes after that because you're reinvesting after reinvesting your money every 12 months like the law allows, or you're buying duplexes to keep for 10 years and then maybe your kids don't want to own a rental portfolio that you had, so you go and sell it, but that means that there's no tax paid when you sell it for your estate planning or what have you. There's no reason why people like that can't use it. So what we do on the educational services side is make sure that even local investors, smaller investors, mid-sized investors, people who are just interested in the information, a couple people who we've worked with who are just interested in a career change because the education allows you to step into more of a fund manager role because it deals with working inside census tracts that have a lot of needs. I see people from different walks of life deciding to get involved in Opportunity Zone funds because maybe they have an interest in food improvement in an area. I've worked with Mount Sinai on their community health needs assessment report a few years back. 
So you go into areas and see where there's a high level of diabetes because there isn't enough natural and fresh food available. So I see people going in with fresh food co-ops and business concepts such as that because they meet with the needs of the communities. I see people going in with educational service companies where census tract information may have shown that the test score numbers in an area might be low and they're able to create income for the business that they're creating by getting grants from local community groups and education groups and so forth. So I'm starting to see more creativity and use on the local front, which I think people who are watching some of the debates coming up, there were whispers of Senator Harris and Senator Booker were going to get a little confrontational on what the Opportunity Zone legislation is doing versus what it was intended to do. And I think that you do see people getting creative in terms of what its intent was meant to be on the local level, which is nice. Yeah, I could see Senator Booker taking some heat because he was one of the main sponsors of the bill, correct? Yeah, on the Democratic side, he was one of the sponsors. They do a lot of national speaking on the subject. I was up at the Opportunity Zone Expo a couple of weeks ago. Secretary Ben Carson spoke and a couple other people from the White House Council on Opportunity Zones. But people always go to me and say, Vic, I'm concerned that what happens if next year the administration changes over? Does this all go away? Is it one side or the other? And what I say is, going back to the beginning of our discussion, the best part about this is it was created under one administration. It was created when I go back to when I was talking about Sean Parker and Steve Glickman, who was a Obama White House advisor. So it was created under one watch, but then it was taken and it was put into law by another watch. So the Trump administration, along with Democratic support like Senator Booker, came in and actually put it into law. So you've got this piece of what is tax law, but really works a lot differently from other tax law. Most tax law doesn't work this, quite frankly, simplistically in what it's meant to be versus getting into the deep details of literally saying, hey, if you buy and sell something, you've got a gain. And if you put that gain into an opportunity zone and you keep it there for 10 years, when you go to sell it, then you don't pay gain. That is the core of what it is. So you've got that core that both sides came together to create. It benefits no one to tear it apart. So why it's broad now and it might get more restrictive over time it's going to remain in place. And typically what you see that happens with law is things tend to get grandfathered in, right? So a lot of the parts which the Treasury and the IRS have kind of indicated aren't going to change is most of the foundation that came out in April. The only piece which I think they're not sure about the flexibility is how the tax treatment is going to work when you're flipping assets within that 10-year time frame because they want to make sure that there's not abuse doesn't go on. You can kind of understand that where if it's really meant to be set up so that you keep your money in these zones for 10 years, however, they've allowed this flexibility of saying, if you have to sell something in a fund, you have 12 months to put it back in, they want to make sure that someone's not committing fraud or committing a bad act or having bad intention with that. So that's one area where they're still considering tightening up a bit but the general concept is going to remain there. Considering that the legislation selected the specific census tracts, 
and there's only a finite supply of property in these areas, are you seeing prices jump in areas that have been designated as opportunity zones? There's some good articles that have come out over the last two or three months that have tried to kind of capture some data and speaking to those points. I saw something come out of a CoStar article a few months back that that was maybe an agency report talking about Fannie or Fannie Mae or, or Freddie looking at a specific area mm-hmm. and they were talking about double digit appreciation in some areas that had been targeted as opportunity zone census tracts. I don't know if that's the case. I have read and seen that discussion on a macro level. I think that the mass awareness and comfortability with the Opportunity Zone program isn't quite there yet to see huge levels of appreciation related to this. I think that we could talk on a more of a real estate cyclical level is that people have to be mindful is that we are on the back end of a 10-year cycle and in specific, a a 10-year real estate cycle. So we are at that point in time in 07 when you start to see prices in general start to go up quite a bit and sometimes unreasonable because you have a lot of players inside the industry that normally wouldn't be in the industry and therefore the competition to get land and the competition to get properties goes up and therefore the price goes up. So I think you have a microcosm of events going on a bit right now, especially if you start to look at areas that are opportunity zones, because those are areas a lot of times where a lot of redevelopment is going on, a lot of new growth is going on, and it's growth that right now is going on on the back end of a cycle. So it's going to be interesting to see what goes on. The yield curve for the finance people out there, the yield curve is inverted twice in the last week, which is a little abnormal. So it's, you, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Can you break that down for the people that might not know what that means? For the larger audience out there, what you saw go on over the last two weeks, there's a huge market drop. It was almost, you know, call it a thousand points on the Dow in a day. And what happened was the yield curves inverted. So what that is, is the U.S. Treasury is tracked on a curve. So There's a two-year treasury, then there's a 10-year treasury. And in general, long-term money is more expensive than short-term money because long-term money is at higher risk because it's out there for a longer period of time versus short-term money. It's going to mature and you're going to get it quicker. So I forget exactly where the treasury sat out up, but the two-year was somewhere around a two-point some number and the 10 years, a two point something number higher. So there was a period of time when the 10 year treasury went below the two year treasury, meaning the two year treasury rate was higher than the 10 year. And what the definition for when that goes on is that the yield curve inverted. What that means is that that's investors giving a signal that they're concerned over long term health of the economy, and they're looking to push their money into safer investments. And historically, what you see is that every time there has been a recession, the yield curve has inverted, and on average, it happens about 22 months before a recession hits, and it's happened every single time. 
not sometimes, every single time. And then the yield curve inverted again this week. The impact on the stock market wasn't as large, but it did happen again. And that's why you see these back and forth whispers of people potentially looking at a payroll tax cut, people net whispering about additional capital gains cuts, but people whispering about why the Fed might need to reduce rates further. These are all things you talk about when you're concerned about a recession coming versus coming out of a downturn, which just goes to the natural cycles of economies and real estate and all this stuff where we went into a recession in 2007 and it really was hurting in 2008 and 2009. And now it's 2019, which means it's 10 years later in the natural course of things that you have a bit of a slowdown. And that's where the jitters are coming from right now. And if we could break that down, 07 and 08 was an anomaly. That was not a textbook recession. That's why it's called the Great Recession. And that's exactly right. So the textbook is that you're only lasting three months. You're crossing your fingers and you're hoping that you're only seeing a downturn over a course of three months and then the economy is able to snap out of it. Like you mentioned, they called it the Great Recession because, quite frankly, it was the closest thing that we have ever seen to the Great Depression as well, not just by how long it lasted, but by how deep the cuts were. I remember at the time I was working in private equity and a gentleman by the name of Dr. Peter Lineman, he was one of the people who really developed the Real Estate Institute at UPenn. So he was on the advisory board of Lubert Adler when I was working there during the Great Recession. And partners would be asking Peter, is this going to be the next great depression? And it's amazing when you're just sitting in a room watching seasoned partners asking questions like that. But the scary thing is when the response is, well, if you see the AAAs fall out from CMBS, then yeah, it is someone who's created a real estate institute at UPenn say, if we go this far, then yes, this will become the Great Depression because that's how bad the Great Recession was that people wondered if it would become the Great Depression. Thanks for joining us for part one. Catch part two coming up next.